You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It's December 8th, 2022 at 7.36 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, I don't think we've really finished talking about mentalizing um, uh, enough. We started last week on it, and I thought maybe we would continue a little bit more about it. But mainly talking about the uh, patterns of mentalizing and um, the assets and deficits that uh, brings uh, focusing on the early period. We learn to mentalize from our caregivers uh, in, in the way that they interact with us when we're children, when we're infants, right at, starting right at the very beginning. Uh, human babies, you know, are born quite prematurely in comparison to other species and are incapable of survival, really incapable of much. Um, a newborn infant can't roll over, for instance, or sit up. Uh, I don't know whether you have that sense of babies, if you've never been around them or spend much time. And then, you know, they uh, if you've ever been around them, you see that they do thousands of these little tiny baby crunches, you know, trying to sit up, strengthen, it, strengthen their muscles. And they, they, they learn to roll over and they learn to creep which is where they sort of slide themselves along the floor because they can't really lift themselves up, up on all four. And then when they get up on all four and they can crawl, that's when the exploration begins. They go from crawling to um, pulling themselves up on anything that's around them. And then they, they go through a period of learning to balance by holding on to things and moving around in the space of where they can hold on to things and balance themselves and then uh, about 10 months or a year old uh, they have some um, mobility on two two feet but in that early uh, crucible of the interaction with the caregiver where actually the whole experience of the world is in the face of the caregiver it's the reflection in the face of the caregiver that's received, which is the information about the nature of yourself and where you begin to construct the working model of self, uh, who you are, what your assets are, what your deficits are, all happen in that early experience of self. We talk about the self, of course, in Buddhism as this not substantial, solid, ongoing, continuous experience but that something that arises based on conditioning uh, in each moment, the sense of self arises based on the conditions of the present moment. So in each moment, the sense of self that arises is slightly different. Um, a pattern of uh, sensing experience is taken in, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, mind, of course, is the activity of uh, cherry picking the things out of the environment that we're going to use to create this experience of the world in the moment that we're there. And in that cherry picking, we're also cherry picking the sensing experiences that react to 
our conditioning that creates the sense of self that arises in the moment to experience what we've uh, created, that sense of duality of this is the self experiencing what's out there is uh, all one experience. So when understand uh, duality as the appearance of the self being other than the sensing experience, but actually it's just all one experience. <clears throat> The database gets built up in these early uh, uh, reflections in the face of the caregiver or the, the people that are around us. We present ourselves authentically in an effort to get our needs met without knowing uh, what it is that we're doing or communicating in that sense. And then uh, our hopefully sensitive enough caregiver uh, empathetically attunes to us and begins to decode our very particular expressions and understand their meaning. And then if they're able to do so, provide uh, a, a good enough response to it so that we have a sense of being seen and being known and being valued by the person. Uh, delight is one of the currencies of secure functioning, that we have a sense that we're delightful uh, so in a, in a good enough relationship with a caregiver, that sense of delight is, is abundant enough that we generally regard ourselves as delightful, even when we're distressed and um, demanding, we have a sense because it's given to us that uh, we are delightful and that we're valuable, that we're not too much that our Caregivers have resources to be able to respond to us in any of our manifestations. Uh, and then if that isn't what happens, we develop a working model that's different than that secure model. Peter Fonagy and Anthony Bateman uh, at the Tavisat Clinic, which is part of the Anna Freud Center in London, developed this map of the early a mentalizing experience that arises from the interactions with the caregivers. And they talked about it in four dimensions. Uh, in one dimension, it's, I like to call it spontaneity and monitoring. They would call it automatic or controlled. Uh, the reason I like uh, spontaneity better is because we're a meditation group and we're talking about mindfulness. We're being mindful of the experience of the present moment. And automatic uh, tends to suggest that you're not necessarily mindful, mindful of what's happening. And then monitoring is continuously monitoring. So in that dimension, not interfering with the experience of uh, uh, sensing, but at the same time, continuously monitoring it. What you'll notice uh, in uh, an over-monitoring situation, for instance, is that the sensing experience becomes quite inhibited. If we use auditory thinking as an example for that, you might notice that the, the always chatty mind that you have completely shuts down when you bring your attention to auditory thinking space and it's just completely quiet. So that's an over-monitoring situation. So you have to loosen up the mind uh, and allow the spontaneous flow, but then don't want to get swept up into the content of what the, the talk 
is and lose the, the monitoring position. The second one is self and other, that you have a, a, a sense of your own experience and you have a, a clear distinction between the experience of others. In Buddhism, often we talk about self and world, but what we really mean is ourselves and other people, because other people are the, the thing that we know, uh, the information about ourselves, even in adult relationships after childhood, the main way that we have a sense of how we are being in the moment that we're being is it's, it's reflected off the experiences of the other people of what's happening. Um, I like to talk about this in terms of emotional clarity, uh, partly. You have the emotional reaction to the present moment. You have self-generated emotion, which is meant to be regulating. You have so somaticized emotional experience, which is the old stuff that's stored in the body. And you have the capacity for the empathetic experience of other people when you're in connection to them. So that when you have a, a clear experience of self, those first three are there. Clear understanding of what the emotional response of the present moment is. You're able to monitor your thoughts and understand that each thought has an emotional component to it. You're able to track that. You're able to track the background old stuff that, that's held in the body and can be reactive to the present moment. And you're actually able to track the empathetic experience of the other person, which gives you an indication of them. And you can hold your own emotional experiences separate from the empathetic experience and notice the interaction between them. Uh, you have a reaction to the empathetic experience you have, and the, the person that you're in relationship to has a reaction to the uh, their empathetic experience of you, which you, you can track in the empathetic experience of them. So there's an exchange, and you're really connected and can uh, feel into each other and have good clarity about the separation of the two experiences. And then there's a, a sensitivity to the differences in conditioning that, that uh, cause you to create an experience of the present moment, which is different than the experience of the present moment that they're creating, even though in some sense you're sharing the experience of the present moment. Your perspective of the present moment is based on your conditioning Theirs is based on their conditioning, and because there's, they're different, you create different versions of the same uh, shared experience. And this is something that's important to understand and actually really value because you get, you get information from that that you wouldn't be able to get on your own because you can uh, compare the experience that you've created of what's happening in the present moment with theirs. Uh, and in some ways uh, expand into uh, or use their database to create a different perspective on what's actually happening. The third dimension is internal versus external. We have um, uh, the capacity to allow information about what's actually happening and we also have the capacity to limit or filter 
what we allow ourselves to know about what's happening. So for instance, dismissing people have a tendency to restrict uh, information about emotional experience that they might be having. And it can get quite severe in the amount of information that they restrict, so that they don't have any sense of uh, emotions in the body. Sometimes they can cut off the body, but still have a cognitive understanding of what of emotions are. But they also have the capacity to eliminate awareness of that and not know what their emotional response is to anything. That's a quite a severe restriction. But in internal, external, there's the, the, the capacity of allowing yourself to know everything about yourself. And uh, when you look at the, the neurobiology of this and the, the, uh, the limited capacity that we have anyway, it's quite startling. And uh, I find one of the more amusing things about the conscious human condition, um, you know, uh, the research is ongoing, of course. One of the things about using any aspect of science in a discussion is that the science is ongoing and so it's constantly changing and so that there's a, 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 a in understanding uh, the nature of that is it's a constantly updating thing with, with the way it goes. But uh, right now, 11 million bits per second is the capacity of the sensing uh, body that you live in if you're fully sensed. But the, the, the width of consciousness, the width, the width of information that the self-experience gets in each moment is only 16 out of 11 million. So that to, to say that the self is the author and the doer and the organizer and the creator of the actions that you take is uh, humorous when you look at that equation. Actually, what you are is the witness to what you do in the self-experience rather than being the organizer and uh, doer. It's not making sense. So you're watching what you do from the self-perspective in case you, you decide uh, on some really boneheaded move and you can intervene, that's the controlled side, just in time to avert uh, some disaster of your own making. Um, uh, have you ever started a sentence, looked at the expression of the face of the person that you're talking to and cut it off? Uh, that would be a case of, of what I'm talking about. Oops, I didn't read that at all. <laughs> in, in Buddhism, of course, we're talking about uh, enlightenment and enlightenment is really to understand the nature of the human condition and be present for the experience of it that's well, what we really mean and so all of these things are uh, pointers to that how we begin to understand um, this uh, activity that we're engaged in so the, my my georgeness or your joanness or your christianness all coming from that database and the way that we assemble it in the moment uh, and if we're clear about it and can really see the pieces that is to say we can mentalize fast enough to understand our reaction to the present moment and how we're formulating it 
and then maybe adjust it so that it's really skillful before we allow it to be expressed, which would be the external aspect of it. And then also, how do we understand other people? We see the external presentation of other people and we interpret a meaning of it. And sometimes if we have a good empathetic connection to them, we can feel into their uh, emotional being and compare them and, and get a sense of whether that there's uh, congru uh, congruency there. We also need to track that they do what they say they're going to do and don't do what they say they're not going to do so that we really have uh, integrity in, in there. A lot of us in childhood learn to split off that, what they do and what they say piece because we can't add up the, the, the family system that we live in if we have to connect that. And then the fourth aspect is the um, cognitive versus affective or emotional experience. In the West, it, it's this um, these poles. One side is thinking, one side is uh, feeling. In Buddhism, we don't really have that all thought has an emotional component to it. I always think back uh, to my days in film school um, <clears throat> when they would show uh, a film which would have the visual, it would have the auditory, and it would have the music, the feeling, and that that could create a very vivid experience of cinema. But if you pulled any one of them away from that, it greatly diminished the impact of it because all of them come together to create a, a sense of reality that we have. The, simply the auditory, simply the visual without the feeling sense doesn't have the same depth of reality that uh, when they're all together. But understanding auditory and visual thinking and understanding emotion and how they come together to create that rich experience of aliveness. Christian. George, the avoidant children is they don't they don't develop like the effective mentalization skills, but they can develop the cognitive right uh skill does that mean that their caretaker wasn't closely kind of face-to-face -face mirroring and marking their effective states uh for them to not get that portion um the avoidance strategy develops early from profound neglect so part of that uh, neglect is uh, a, a lack of uh, enough time um, with the, the face mirroring back the experience of the child so that they can identify it. The other thing that happens from neglect, of course, is that it's frightening and painful uh, to be uh, uh, have that sense of being abandoned, that sense of being rejected and because there's no help from the caregiver to teach the child how to regulate those experiences, the child begins to uh, learn to suppress them uh, as a way of uh, uh, survival, really. 
It's, um, so there's no feedback. And then the child is left to its own devices to figure out a way to regulate those experiences. And the solution that children come up with is to uh, prevent a, uh, the experience of them arising in consciousness. It doesn't mean that they don't have the feeling states. Uh, they do have the feeling states. It just means they don't have conscious awareness of the feeling states. So in uh, studying children in the strange situation, uh, they did put EEGs on kids uh, to see uh, what was going on bio, uh, you know, in, in the body with them. Um, and they found that the anxious avoidant kids were the ones that were in the most distress, but they were also the ones that had no uh, external presentation of being in distress. And one of the th thoughts they had was that because they don't have conscious awareness of, in of being in distress, they never seek help for the distress from anyone. It simply stays unconscious. And so they have distressing experiences, which they don't make any attempt to regulate in any way. And so they, they get to be more intense. That, so that means they have like poor interoception? Yes. Hesh? Yeah, I might have, um, maybe maybe this is a question about discernment. And since you seem to be able to hold the entire model in your head at once, I can ask you. <laughs> um, so when you, I hear you talking about mentalizing, it sounds like an experience that I can recognize as maybe view or maybe conditioning and internal imagery asserting itself into a view. Um, what are the components of it in mindfulness that I can kind of maybe look at? to see the whole. So what you would want to be able to do is track auditory thinking, visual thinking, and the emotional experience in the body. Uh, and as you formulate conceptual reality using Vipassana, you would, you would want to be able to trace the uh, memory threads uh, that are activated when you create the experience of the present moment, so that you have some sense of what uh, conditioning response it is that you're having and then what you want to be able to do is compare what's happening in the present moment to the conditioned thread to see if they line up enough uh, and then also to see that you're responding to the present moment and not responding to what happened in the conditioned thread if that makes sense it does um my follow-up then is about that thread how do you how do you hold that thread in equanimity? Because it seems like the the driven response would be to suppress it, maybe. Um, I think that um, well, in the process of actively mentalizing, and of course you 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 hold it in the past. Um, what, what often happens uh, to people that uh, have unresolved the, the uh, conditioned experiences is that the, the experience of them being in the past is lost and they can become uh, experiences uh, as if they're in the present and uh, overwhelming in that way. Um, 
but it's a little by little kind of thing. Uh, you once you get up to the speed of mentalizing, or you can begin to track that, and you can really hold things that have happened in the past uh, and hold the present moment separately from them. The intensity of the experience of them is diminished. And when, when you do it enough times, uh, each time uh, they diminish to the point where they're no longer overwhelming. That's what I would say to that. Um, you know, in, in this formulation uh, of, of uh, taking the raw sensing data and forming it into conceptual reality, first the mind goes around and gathers the little bits of sensing data then that and this is all unconscious, pre-conscious. Uh, it's the evaluation of how urgent it is, how much attention it needs is made. It, if it's urgent, it goes to the head of the line. It's then compared to the perceptual database for an experience that's close enough to it that the meaning, uh, the conditioned meaning attaches to the experience of the present moment. And then that folds open into uh, conceptual reality, and then the intention for the response to the interpretation of conceptual reality forms, and then you, you're free to take an action in response to what formulation you created. And adequate mentalizing would be that you could follow that whole process, and in the intention part of it, uh, evaluate whether uh, your response makes sense given the actual conditions of the present moment. And when you tend to take actions that are not uh, so in line with the present moment, it's usually because you've lost uh, track of the present moment and are just in the flow of, of the, the conditioning. And you're responding as you've habitually responded to things like that. That makes sense. I like the quantum uh, physics model too. In each moment, every single possibility that uh, you could choose that's available in that moment is available. Um, but we, we do get into these ruts of samsara where we just pick over and over again from this very limited selection of possibilities. Each time we do, of course, all of the other possibilities disappear and it's just the one that we pick that forms the next moment. And then all of the possibilities that are tied to that previous choice is what opens up. So that you can get into these vicious cycles of over and over again, repeating conditioned behavior, which can be terribly defeating and painful, which doesn't mean that in each moment, all of the other choices weren't there. They were there. You just didn't see them. You, didn't, you just didn't pick them. Uh -huh. Sorry, um, I wanted to uh, ask the follow-up question from what I'm hearing from you. Um, congruency has come up in, in what you've described a few times. Is congruency then a byproduct of this process or is that another intentional effort? How are you meaning it? Um, like emotional congruency, like you were talking about when when the other sees you, you know, they're able to tell if you're in a congruent expression mode? Um, that would take somebody who knows you really well and would also probably okay. take some inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, 
I don't know about you, but I, I totally flunked high school telepathy. <laughs> I didn't take it in college. <laughs> um, this is what I think is going on. It's a good statement. This is what's going on. It's not a good statement. This is what I think is going on. What do you think is going on? is a wonderful basis for communication. Um, you, this is what you said to me, and this is the effect that it had on me. Uh, was that the intention of your expression is a good way to inquire about something that's hurtful. Uh, and if it was actually an accurate understanding of what it is, uh, and it was hurtful, then you have uh, a ground for dialogue about it. Um, you did this without such a fertile ground uh, because the anger shuts everybody down creates a defensive to it um, and often what you're noticing is that the big the big self-experience is what's happening and then we get lost in identification with the big self-experience and we need to defend the big wounded self or the big angry self or the big frightened self and actually that, that's insubstantial you can let that come and go and, and, and continue to seek closeness and uh, understanding uh, the more secure you are of course in your connection to other people uh, it's, it's that kind of dialogue is less frightening because you don't worry about being rejected or abandoned in it. You worry about being seen and understood. And you worry about uh, seeing uh, the other person and understanding them more than you do about being abandoned and lost to the difficult world we live in. That making sense. If you look at the development of mentalizing um, and the attachment uh, systems that arise in secure attachment, right out of the gate, most people can mentalize well enough and uh, have this dynamic range of in the early mentalizing experience. That means when they show up at the playground at uh, four or five years old, they have a, a basis for communicating and for interacting with the world and interacting with other people and uh, and doing the assignments of socializing and learning and all of the rest of it pretty well and then you notice that other people are less uh, able to do that and so that early platform is what uh, offers us a springboard if you will into uh, the things, the later developments, and the the lack of those foundations actually inhibit uh, or restrict uh, our capacities. Uh, and so, as as life goes on, uh, the 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 lack of mentalizing skills can be quite inhibiting in terms of moving ahead with what needs to happen. In the 
development of a collaborative uh, relational systems, which is the foundation of secure functioning. Um, when you don't have a responsive enough caregiver, and this is somebody who responds 30% of the time or better, which is a which is an astonishingly low bar, I think. When you look at the success of the human species on the globe, you would need something that was an astonishingly low bar <laughs> to uh, uh, make sense of uh, how we go. But um, dismissing people because nobody comes to them, they don't move out of this original auto-regulating stance. We all come into the world uh, as auto-regulators. And then if people come well enough uh, and respond to us well, well enough, we reorient toward external regulation. But because nobody really comes well enough for uh, a, uh, an avoidant uh, child, they stay in that auto-regulating space. One of the reasons why uh, they learn to suppress their emotions is a way of uh, dealing with uh, the, the difficulties of having to only auto-regulate is because it's too painful otherwise. And because they don't have actual help from anybody else, they don't have uh, options to do differently. Christian? But uh, avoidant children, like they learn to become good explorers, I guess, generally. So they're are they actually being encouraged in their exploration by their caregivers in some way? Or is it just kind of like, like, you know, like whatever our attachment styles, we're learning how to get our care and we're, and we're learning to respond in a way that's going to get us cared for. And so are they just learning to become good explorers because that's just what they have to do with themselves or they're actually doing that as a response to the caregiver encouraging just that? but not encouraging the effective part. Well, you might um, call it a pseudo exploration rather than the, the vital exploration of a secure person. So a secure child uh, begins exploration when they're able to actually locomote away from the caregiver and explore things. So. It, you're talking creeping, they don't get very far, but crawling they do. And, um, a child will crawl, say, to the, to the middle of the room and look back for encouragement. And if they get encouragement, they'll be emboldened to go further and then they'll get to a doorway and they'll look back and they'll crawl out of the door and crawl right back in, looking to see that the caregiver is there and supporting them. And the more reliable the caregiver is, the greater the distances that they get to explore. That would be a secure one. And then the child discovers something and they rush back to the caregiver and they can't wait to share their discovery with the caregiver. And the caregiver then has an, uh, the opportunity to delight in the child's discoveries and go through that with the child. And then the child learns that their interests are important and what uh, their perspective is important and something valuable that they can share with somebody who's interested in, in their perspective. But this isn't what really a dismissing person is doing. What you'll notice in uh, uh, dismissing or anxious avoidant children is they 
explore because nobody inhibits them from going. They don't come back because there's nothing to come back to. Often, if they're restricted in some way or they have to perform in some way to satisfy the caregivers and their, their actual interests aren't rewarded, they learn to keep those secret and perform in the way that they need to in order to get their needs met. So they don't give up on getting their needs met. They don't learn to collaborate with other people to meet those needs in the way that secure people do. So the, we, we would say that they get really focused on secondary exploration, which is the acquiring of resources to transact the kind of care that they want. So they tend to go for social positions or money or some kind of resource that they can then use to trade for the kind of care that they want as adults, which is very different than a secure person collaborating with somebody else uh, mutually caring for each other. If somebody comes good enough that you reorient toward external regulation, but they're not reliable enough that you can predict how to elicit a response from them. So uh, secure kids, they make a gesture, the, the caregiver sensitively attunes them, understands what the gesture is and then provides the care that the child wants. The child understands in doing that, that if I make this gesture, I can get that care. And so they begin to move out of the externally focused into the collaborative experience of care. I need this, I make this expression and then my caregiver meets my needs. And as I get older, I understand that my caregiver is separate from me, that they have an agenda and I have an agenda that I can collaborate with them so that each of our agendas can be met in a way that provides the care that I need, that collaborative balance. That doesn't happen with a dismissive person. And with a preoccupied person, because the care is too inconsistent for them to be able to understand uh, what to do to get the, the care that they want, they don't develop that uh, sense of security, that sense of collaboration with a caregiver. And then they don't have that capacity when they hit the playground and move into the, the mid-childhood uh, development period. Is that making sense? So that what we talk about in, in terms of using meditation to train mentalizing is to begin to understand the maps of uh, uh, assets and deficits that we have based on our early conditioning and train the deficits. Uh, what, are, what are the things that I uh, find the most charming about this uh, is that most people would prefer to train uh, the skills they already have than to have to go through the learning of the skills that they don't have. Because one is pleasurable and one is uh, challenging. So it's that, that, you know, that moving away from pain toward pleasure concept that the Buddha talked about. And here we have to really uh, uh, insist that we train uh, the deficits. Christian? So do you find in the kind of modular way that you, you teach Vipassana, like mentalization skills, that that maps pretty consistently with 
your students' attachment styles or like whatever the AAI said that they'll struggle with a certain Vipassana uh, skill or meditation type and excel at others and it's pretty consistent? Uh, it is with organized, insecure people. So secure people and organized, insecure people, that's pretty consistent with, dismiss, with disorganized people. It's still all over the place. It's harder to tell. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, a, a dismissing person typically doesn't have any memory before puberty. One of the ways that they learn to emotionally regulate is to focus intentionally away from anything that has an emotional content to it. They're very material oriented, object oriented. Um, they learn to be object oriented because objects don't typically produce much in the way of emotion and they're looking for an emotionless existence because emotions are painful. But uh, human memory requires a strong emotion in order to make it from short term memory into long term memory and because they're focusing so much on things that have no emotion. They don't remember anything because they, they don't succeed in passing uh, the short term to long term transition because the emotional content is too little or the experiences are really bad and they suppress those. So with a dismissing person, uh, you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, let's try and dig up all the memories of your childhood because the only ones they're going to remember are bad. And who wants that? <laughs> Particularly when you don't need them to repair the, the mentalizing capacity or the attachment conditioning. That makes sense. So we're economical in that way. The preoccupied people don't monitor anything; they just re respond. It's when you can't re predict what you have to do to get the response you want. You just have to keep going through uh, through presentations until you hit one that works and because there's no consistency moment to moment, you just keep rolling through them. It doesn't matter whether you track them or not, because if it succeeds, even if it succeeds in this moment, there's no likelihood that it will exceed and succeed in the next moment. Does that make sense? So what's the point in tracking? That doesn't get what doesn't get you what you need and it takes too much energy. So you can see why these things happen. And then uh, preoccupied people tend to not remember so much about themselves, but they remember a lot about other people. So they're good resources for other people, mem memories of other, their experience of other people, but since they don't track their own experience, they don't remember their own experience. So these are the kinds of patterns that you can see when, when you do these, uh, these uh, investigations. Um, Disorganized uh, people, you know, uh, fearfully preoccupied, fearfully avoidant, tend to go one way or the other, uh, like organized people do, but complexly disorganized people there could pre present anything. So that they can do that is one way that you have a sense of the dis level of disorganization. Joan? So how do you categorize a child who may look uh, dismissive so it looks very controlled on the outside and it's not expressive but on the inside has access to emotion and it could it could feel extreme 
um, then you're probably looking at a passively preoccupied. So we track different things. Role, re role reversal or involvement in the mind state of the caregiver is the thing that causes preoccupation. But if you add to that rejection, then that's what creates that particular formulation. The child learns that they can't make any authentic expression above them about themselves. That's the cutoff part that looks like the dismissing person, but they have the chaotic internal life of a preoccupied person. So with, dismissing, mm, go ahead. No, is is so that would that be you said disorganized or passively? No, passively preoccupied is a insecure organized strategy. Okay. Yeah, oftentimes the, the assumption is that they're dismissing because they're cut off. Um, but they're, they're not uh, dismissing people are cut off from themselves and passively preoccupied people are not cut off from themselves. They cut off. They cut themselves off from other people. That's why when you're looking at them, it has a similar appearance. Okay. And they they keep that expression secret, which is also something that dismissing people do. Dismissing people really keep their their the central core of their life secret because of the rejection. That they experience in childhood. So the common factor is rejection. Yeah. Or a sense of rejection. Normally you have dismissing from neglect, but sometimes uh, neglect has a, a, a rejecting component. It's the childhood uh, of profound neglect has, in addition to that, rejection. That, that creates a much more cut off person. But you can also have the rejection in relationship to the preoccupation. You, you see in, in eating disorders, for instance, it's common to have the involving role reversing and the rejection. That's one of the hallmarks of that. So what do you think? Shall we do some meditation? <clears throat> um, we can either go the meta way or we can go the positive way. What do you think? Meta. Vipassana. Why not both? It's a, it's a tie. <laughs> <laughs> I did meta today once, so I'll be the tiebreaker. We'll go Vipassana. All right. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. lot of subliminal talk oh good yeah you mean it didn't ever burst into clear talk yeah like muttering <laughs> but repetitive you know <laughs> there was some emotion generated but not nothing like a super uh, potent good good insight someone else Dealing with the hindrance of sloth and torpor. 
Yes. It's late. It is. Yeah. Reminds me of that Mary Oliver poem. It's already late. Uh, stand up. Open the eyes. Walk. Those are the remedies to sloth and torpor. Indeed. <laughs> I just got back from a retreat, so there was there was some standing indeed. <laughs> ah, good. Yeah. Or just succumb to the deliciousness of falling asleep. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was funny because uh who was it? I don't know. When I was talking to somebody and they did a retreat in Burma and it uh, was like a month long with a bunch of monks and then he opened his eyes during the retreat one time and saw this monk at the front of the stage just like he's like well at least it's not me just me <laughs> yeah uh when we were there uh santa said you're getting off easy and i, I said oh yeah what's that and he said you don't have to be in Zendo until 4 30. so we're of a positive <laughs> retreat you have to be here at 3 30. <laughs> oh god oh <laughs> A lot of that. Yes, very hardcore. Mm. Anything else? Do you bring your back scrubber for, for the chanting on those retreats, George? <laughs> well, there, there, uh, on those retreats, the chanting was at, uh, in the evening at 10 p.m. So you start the day at four and then be chanting at uh, 10 p.m. Long day. Um, so we have uh, the holidays coming up. So really for the rest of the year, we're not doing that much. But then in January, we are going to start a new level one in uh, uh, Pacific time. And then uh, a level two, and then we're going to do another uh, level one in EU time um, in April, I think it is. And then um, I'm doing uh, a, a in-person retreat in Utrecht in June, which is in the Netherlands. It's about a half hour south of Amsterdam. Um, and I think that that takes us all the way into July of next year. Uh, we'll be doing another a couple of level ones and a, um, uh, a second round of level two uh, over the summer uh, here. And then in the fall, we'll do one in EU time, uh, our first level two in EU time. So if you know people over there. Um, because it is the holidays and some gift giving might be in, in line, we have new merch in case you want to <laughs> take a look at it. We have three new t-shirts, uh, um, a new I Love You Keep Going, a new Meta Against the Machine, and the first version of uh, Always Cool, Always Kind, which I think is a lovely idea for a shirt. Um, we have a new chat book on uh, secure attachment in case you want to 
a primer on that. And then I have a new book called Punch Outs. Uh, so three or four days to get the shirts and so on. And then it takes about eight days or so to get a book. So if you want that, my marketing guy told me to make this pitch. So that's I'm doodlefully complying. <laughs> Plus, it, it is a beautiful book. Like book. How did you, how, George, how did you come up with those uh, bracelets? Oh, these are t-shirts. Well, we've been doing Meta Against the Machine for a while. It was. Don't you have bracelets though? We have bracelets. What, have. What's up? Do you have the What Would Jesus Do bracelets now? No, I have one that says, what's the secure choice? Do that. Uh, okay. Okay. I probably uh, need one. Yeah. I have one that says, uh, um, compassionate resistance, kind action. Uh, I love you. Keep going, of course. Uh, May you be peaceful. We have one of those. <laughs> what happened to love people and feed them? Um, you know, since uh, all of the meditation centers closed and there's no in-person, uh, it's hard to hand out dollar bills to people and say, give them away. Hmm. Um, I, you, he's referring to uh, when I first started teaching meditation, uh, and I would ask people, uh, or I would say that that um, generosity was the entrance into the path, uh, since we don't really teach generosity in the West, it's very hard for people to grasp that. And so then I would say, give a dollar to a homeless person if they ask, without considering whether they deserve it or not. And nobody would do it because there was a scarcity mentality. So then I started stamping dollar bills with love people and feed them and giving them to the people who came to the meditation classes uh, with the instruction to give them away to a homeless person if somebody asked without uh, evaluating whether they deserved it or not. There's a lot of, for instance, if if a homeless person came up and they were drunk, a lot of people have this idea that they shouldn't help them because they're causing their own suffering. But um, we don't have a good way of judging how somebody ended up in front of us in the way that they are. So, um, and then people began to give away the dollars because they uh, it wasn't their dollar and they were instructed to it. Plus, I would give them another dollar if they gave away the dollar that I gave them. And then they begin to have the experience of generosity, which was for actually quite amazing. So I don't know whether you know this or not, but they made a documentary film about it. <clears throat> uh, that. Um, I ended, of course, on the cutting room floor because <laughs> they took the opinion that Mentally ill homeless people should be forced into treatment, which I didn't support. So. Anecdotally, you also had to set your stamper up because people at the end of the class wanted to stamp their own money because yes, they were so enthralled with the practice. Well, you know what? Um, hilariously, maybe um, can you see this? I love you. Keep going. 
uh, I love pe love people feed them, which is somebody. It's a two dollar bill. I only gave away dollar bills, so stamps Anyway, you may have heard that. Uh, sorry, I'm back on my soapbox. In New York, uh, they're now uh, rind rounding people up and declaring that they're mentally ill and institutionalizing them, whether they want to go or not. Which is a, which is heartbreaking. Anyway, really appreciate your practice. Thank you for coming. We'll see you soon. I hope somewhere along the path. I am going to take the week off between Christmas and New Year's, so we we won't have a, a meeting then. But we will uh, all of the other times. See you soon. Bye.